Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am joining you from Sundance, Utah, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have Nicholas Burns. Uh, who is one of uh, America's most distinguished uh, diplomats of the past generation and a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School. And in Washington, D.C., in her deeply buried silo someplace, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. Um, Nick, you know, I want to begin with what's really important in the world, and uh, I think that requires that we look at the New England Patriots, Use them, use them in a metaphor about global affairs, though, so it sounds sensible. Well, David, I'm, I'm happy that you and I are, are starting with this because we're both members of Patriots Nation. I would just say that truth, justice, and righteousness has won out in the American Football Conference Championships. And if you look at this, actually, you look at this from a management perspective or a leadership perspective of how to be successful in the world. You've had a coach and a quarterback together for 16 years. They've dominated um, this very competitive league in a way that no uh, team had for a generation. So it's a good metaphor for how to win and how to be great again in America. Yes, the New England Patriots are a, mer- a metaphor for what America used to be, um, uh, at least in the eyes of the world, what America is um, perhaps outside of Washington, D.C. But inside of Washington, D.C., of course, we see something rather different. Uh, and that is an America that uh, uh, is hitting new levels of dysfunctionality. Of course, headlines in the past few days have included uh, the the shithole controversy uh, and the, the notion that the president of the United States had taken to insulting vast swaths of the planet Earth in single uh, gestures. Uh, following that was the shithole shutdown. Uh, where the government <laughs> stopped working because the Democrats saw this as an opportunity um, to hold the president and the GOP's feet to the fire for what I think are unreasonable positions in terms of uh, 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 their government funding requests. Um, and the question I, I'd like to explore here in this episode is, beyond Trump, beyond Washington, how does... How does the way Washington is working right now, not having diplomats, having senior executives in the government running policies that are different from those of the president, having shutdowns, um, look to the world? Um, you know, Donald Trump is supposed to go this week to the World Economic Forum. Uh, if the shutdown ends, he will. If it doesn't, he won't. But what do you think the people there um, – Think about this version of the United States of America, Rosa. <laughs> I, I don't think that they are uh, 
thinking we are covering ourselves with glory. Um, it no, it's embarrassing. I I think that we look like fools, um, and the people who basically like us are trying their darndest to cover for us. Uh, the people who don't like us are trying their darndest to highlight the fact that we look like uh, fools and not very pleasant fools at that. It, no, it's, it's devastating. And, and I, in my own travels, and I'm, I'm sure this is the same for, for you and for Nick, when, when I speak with representatives of, uh, foreign countries, they just say, you know, what's going on with the United States? Obviously you're, you're, you've ceded your leadership role. The U S is no longer, we're not viewing the U S as a major player on anything. And, and needless to say, that doesn't mean our, our, our destructive capacity remains astronomical and remains intimidating. But the if, if you think of the degree to which the United States historically has been able to uh, successfully pursue its interests and, and achieve uh, foreign policy goals that we believe are consistent with our interests, we've done it as much because of the positive, the carrots as the sticks and the carrots aren't just money and defense cooperation and so on. The carrots are also just the, the, the global sense that we are a leader, that we stand for something that people value, that we will help them do things that are useful to them, not just in narrow economic sense uh, or a military sense. And I think we've, we're really losing that positive leadership capability that we can still scare people, uh, but we no longer, uh, we, we're, we're losing our ability to be, admired or to, to, to uh, create admiration. Um, I've just been informed that, uh, fortunately for us, Corey Shockey, the peripatetic Corey Shockey, <laughs> has joined us um, online. And I'm going to say, hi, Corey. Hi, Corey. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. Hello, Rosa. Okay. And then I'm going to pose the question to Nick Burns so that Corey can listen in and make sure that she's up to speed on this before I turn to her. Um, but Nick, I know you travel around, you talk to a lot of world leaders, you've got great relationships with world leaders, and you're also seen as somebody who's worked very effectively uh, for both Republican and for Democratic administrations, so not as a, as, a, as a, a highly politicized figure. So people must be coming to you and talking to you about this um, in a different way, saying, you know, is this lasting? Is this a long-term effect? What does this mean for our planning? What are, what are the questions you're getting? Well, David, I just returned um, from London um, visit last week. Uh, I went into the British House of Lords, not a place of radical dissent about the United <laughs> States historically. And there was a debate on Thursday afternoon in the House of Lords where speaker after speaker uh, condemned the America First policies of Donald Trump, condemned the statements that he's made, derogatory statements about Haiti, about African countries. And I think it leads to, you know, the truth that all of us realize that much of American power depends not just on our military, but as Rosa was saying, on our moral strength, our credibility. And the government shutdown exposes the deep Republican, Democrat, red-blue paralysis in Washington. The Trump comments exhibit, exhibit flagrant disregard for entire countries and continents, as Emmanuel Macron said very publicly over the weekend, these are not words that leaders should use ever in international politics, and our president has used them. And I think in Europe, um, the Europeans are concerned by the rise of populism, far-right, anti-democratic populism in Hungary, in Poland, maybe in the Czech Republic. 
depending on the results of their election. And they don't see the United States for the first time since 1945 leading the democratic countries to strengthen themselves against populism. And last, just look at the Gallup poll of last week. It shows a seismic collapse that countries have uh, in the trust that countries have in, in the United States. So when you talk about confidence and trust, we seem to be losing it um, uh, internationally. It's difficult to win it back. Um, by the way, Nick, you, you, I assume you're aware that Corey is, is, is moving soon to actually join the House of Lords. As <laughs> well, something like that, yes. Her double I, double it has such a nice ring to it. <laughs> yeah, no, so we will that it would enrage Rosa, so I can't do it. <laughs> no, I, we don't believe in these foreign titles. <laughs> yeah, well, I, but we will refer to her as, as uh, Lady Shockey going forward, um, <laughs> just to tone things up here a bit. But, you know, Corey, as I think about this, and I often think about things, you know, when I'm, we're, we're talking in terms of historical perspective. So much is going on right now. You know, the news is full of such, you know, it's everything from porn stars to nuclear war. And 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 the, the story changes every 15 minutes. But it's very easy for us to be sort of caught in the moment. But what Nick is saying is profoundly important and is a profound change. We may have despaired from Barack Obama's diffidence in, in, in Syria uh, or his not quite complete mastery of foreign affairs. But the reality is that what Nick is saying is that after three quarters of a century, for the first time um, in the modern era, the United States is not seen as the leading um, power in the world. Oh, my dear David, I so love it when you pitch me a hanging curve because <laughs> <laughs> it is my favorite one to swing for the fences with. I don't disagree with anything Rosa or Nick have said. I enthusiastically endorse their view of what we look like to the world. But as you were suggesting, dear leader, um, it's actually not the first time. The shocking thing about that Gallup poll is not the collapse of 30 points in in regard for the United States and the world. What is shocking about that poll is that Donald Trump is roughly where George Bush was held in the year of our Lord 2008. Moreover, we have a tendency to think that we've always looked bright and shiny to the rest of the world. And yet, if you think about points at which people who care about American power would would argue it was near its zenith, the 1970s, the 1950s, right? In 1954, the 101st Airborne Division was having to protect black children as we were forcibly integrating Southern schools. How about the My Lai Massacre in 1973? What did America look like to the world at that period of time where we were impeaching a sitting president for criminal activity. So it's true that Donald Trump is different, more disgraceful, and more embarrassing than American presidents typically are. But we ought also to remember that that we don't that there's a very complicated relationship that the United States has with the rest of the world. And while in general we are we have as much power of attraction as we have of intimidation 
we very often look to others like we are tobogganing towards Gomorrah. And that's not particularly new. And, and we ought to be wondering why others in the world don't take us as much worse at the moment than they took George Bush in 2008, than they took, right? Because it does to those of us who are elites paying careful, close attention to these issues. This does look different and worse. Okay, so Rosa, let's let's um, examine that the the thesis a little bit. Is there something materially different about this moment than George W. Bush going into Iraq against global opinion, or uh, the Clinton period of impeachment, or uh, the Milai massacre, or the uh, racial divisions in the country in the '60s? Um, it, it, you know, is is there a cumulative effect? Is is the fact that Bush was followed by Obama is followed by Trump change the view? Is there anything about this that makes this moment different, or are we just falling, or was I just in that my question falling into the trap that you know people who write newspaper columns often do or books often do of saying this is the worst moment in history and <laughs> you know because that sells. No, I, Corey is has as ever is absolutely right to remind us that there have been plenty of moral failings Yay! on the part of the United States uh, in the past. Um, and Corey, I, I have to excuse me, but I have to say, <laughs> if you are going to enter the House of Lords and you say, "Yay," <laughs> it's just not going to go over. Okay, it's <laughs> that's how you know they what? speak over there, David. That's that's how like... the lords all speak. I feel like there's no escaping my Annie Oakley vibe, so I'm just going to own it, David. <laughs> okay. All right. We're gl- we, we are glad for that. Sorry, Rose. Um, well, well, but so going back to the question, um, yeah, the U.S., despite our city upon a hill rhetoric, um, has never been all that we have claimed to be or hoped to be, and of course, the the original uh, sermon that gave rise to the phrase "City on the Hill" was very much framed as a as a warning, not as a promise. Uh, it was John Winthrop saying, "If we get it right, we'll be we're going to be as a city upon the hill. If we screw up, everybody's going to hate us. Um, we're going to look like the biggest hypocrites in church." Yeah, no, no, no. It was very much framed as a, you know, hey, everybody, everyone is looking at us. Let's live up to their expectations and our own values. Otherwise, we shall be made a, 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 a byword and hounded out of this land and so forth. It's fairly dire uh, in terms of the, yeah. the warning language. Um, um, and, and, you know, there's always been that tension. I, and indeed, I think that you could say that that's, that's the fertile tension that has animated this nation from its birth, has been that it, it is a nation that was founded not upon blood or ethnicity, but founded upon an idea and and a set of ideals. And we have never fully lived up to those ideals ever. Um, there are all sorts of horrific failings from the slaughter of Native Americans to slavery, all the right through to some of the more recent episodes that Corey mentioned. Notwithstanding that, those ideals have remained very powerful. And I think that what has made the United States unique and and very attractive around the globe has been the fact that those people people recognize those ideals as important ones and they recognize that the US however imperfectly has been striving towards them and and all of the episodes that that Corey mentioned 
in in a sense, it was horrific things happening even as other good things and advances occurred. Uh, I think what makes this feel different now is the sense that it's bad all over, that there's no good to counterbalance the bad, that that it's very, very difficult to say, well, on the on the bad side, you know, there's the Vietnam War. On the plus side, look at the look at the Civil Rights Act, you know. Or on the bad side, you know, uh, there was the Iraq War. On the plus side, the U.S. is uh, you know doing these good things from an economic perspective. To me, this does feel most similar to the period of about two year, two three years in the first George W. Bush administration, when between the disastrous decision to go to war in Iraq. Uh, and the uh, scandal over U.S. interrogation methods of waterboarding, torture, and so on, uh, and the U.S. Uh, presidential administration seeming contempt for the Geneva Conventions. And you'll recall that was a moment when uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were, were speaking very dismissively about our traditional alliances. Remember, they've talked about old Europe uh, was no longer in step with us. And that, that was the closest thing I think, to where we are now, that there was this horrifying moment where it looked like the U.S. was not just doing one or two bad things, but the U.S. was retreating wholesale from a set of values and commitments that had always, however, imperfectly championed. But as Corey said, uh, we had a, we sort of had a course correction. Um, and, and the second Bush, George W. Bush administration was very different from the first. And then President Obama came in and things kind of course corrected. Then Obama <laughs> made his own mistakes. I, I do think that what's different about Trump is this sense that he does not even pretend to care about the norms and the values that every U.S. president for decades has pretended to care about. Well, David, Nick. this is Nick calling in from Patriots Nation. Could I just add to what Rosa said very quickly? Because I, I agree with both Rosa uh, and Corey. I think, you know, in my own life, I was, a, uh, I was overseas as a high school student in the 1970s and also as a university student. So I remember that a lot of foreigners criticized us on race, obviously because of our short, massive shortcomings on race, on Vietnam and Iraq. I think what's different now is that... Um, America first sends a signal that we're not engaged and we're no longer going to lead in the way that every president has since Truman in both parties. And second, that we're not standing up for democracy at a time when it's really under siege. Russia and China are emboldened. Uh, they are very assertive in Europe and in Asia. And our European allies are on the back foot because of the rise of populism. They don't see Donald Trump helping them or speaking up for democracy. In fact, they see his Warsaw speech when he seems to embrace the far-right nationalists themselves. I think that's what's different between Trump and every one of his predecessors. Well, when you uh, talk about these things with the people who are uh, asking questions, and I know you've got to go and teach a class in 15 minutes, so I want to return right back to you here. Um, do you say, well, you know, I was under Secretary of State, you know, with Condi Rice and, and in, in, in during the second Bush administration when things started to you know get reset we we got our legs back under us and 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 things worked pretty well and so you can expect that to happen again um or or you know i mean is is the message the us always rebounds and you can expect a rebound or or is it something different 
Well, I, what's dismaying now is so many people hiding behind Donald Trump, especially in Congress, Republican leaders not speaking up for what I think they believe in and some of the principles that the three of us, the four of us have been talking about. What I say to people overseas, and I, I, I do believe it, is that look at the public opinion polls. Look at the Chicago Council poll. Look at the Pew polls. Look at Gallup. The American people are saying in the public opinion polls that they support immigration, that continued immigration. They support taking in refugees, not by huge majorities, by the way, but by slim majorities, but by larger majorities. They say the American people say they support NATO and our alliances, and they support trade. Even Democrats, traditionally hostile to free trade, say that they support the continuation of that. These are the three areas uh, in trade, immigration, and alliances where Donald Trump has upended the Republican-Democrat consensus of the last 70 years. So I hope and believe that when Donald Trump leaves office, whether it's a Republican or Democrat who succeeds him, we're going to see a more traditional, i.e. more successful and more committed American foreign policy on those and other issues. That's how I explain it to foreign audiences. I hope I'm right. Well, you know, uh, one of the ways Donald Trump may leave office is that uh, he may be forced out of office um, uh, and you might get Mike Pence as the president of the United States. And as we're recording this episode, Mike Pence is in the Middle East and he is spouting a line that's very, very, you know, tightly used to to the Trump line on restoring the embassy or moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, um, taking a very hard line, telling, you know, the Palestinians, you know, sort of essentially the opposite of the James Baker statement when he was secretary of state, where he said, you know, Israel knows what the phone number of the White House is, you know, and he essentially said, you know, the Palestinians, you know, you know, know where we are. We're, we're willing to talk to them if they want to come into this. He's he he doesn't seem like you know, having Mike Pence as president of the United States would produce a big change from Trump. Um, uh, Corey, what do you think? I actually think Mike Pence would be a pretty big difference from Trump, but not necessarily in ways that are advantageous. So I do think um, that Mike Pence would let the, the practices of government return to normal order, right? So you would have a regular interagency process. You would have cabinet meetings at which people would talk to the president and shape his views as opposed to a president who has very fixed views since the 1980s about immigration, about trade, and about alliances that are dramatically at variance with mm -hmm. most of his administration and most of the American public, as Nick has said. So I think regular order would return under Pence, but he would have different fixed, immutable, uh, incorrect views, like, for example, the belief that, you know, we should disproportionately assist Christians, even if they are not disproportionately the ones most affected by dangerous or damaging activity in the world. I, I was shocked by Vice President Pence's comments uh, a couple of days ago in the Middle East talking to American military folks where he chose to make a partisan political statement in front of active duty troops. That is so far beyond the line of what is appropriate use of political, of military folks as political backdrops. 
it's disgraceful and it's actually quite dangerous to civil military relations. I think we'll see a lot of that kind of stuff under Pence. This is not the first time Pence has done that. He did it in his, was it the Naval Academy speech? Uh, early on in the administration when he said President Trump is going to be the best friend the American military's had and you all should support him. So, so Pence, you know, m- my view is that the vice president is a dim-witted bigot and that for the most part he would be a trade up from the current president because less erratic <laughs> and <Christ>. more <laughs> able to be constrained by processes. But, but let's not make him into Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I just, I love the, my, the vice president is a dim-witted bigot and would be a step up from the current president. But, you know, That, of course, is the view of the, you know, lifetime holder of the tiara of optimism. Rosa, when you were in Turkey, (laughs) I'm sure this was coming up. uh, And based on what you just said, perhaps your response to everybody is pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We've always been terrible. You know, we've had our genocides and we had our slavery and we've had our massacres. And, you know, um, we're always a mixed bag. So, you know, get used to it. America is powerful because of its people. And, uh, you know, the presidents are bad sometimes and good sometimes. Was, was Were those the comforting words you offered or was it something else? <laughs> I wasn't able to offer a whole lot of comfort to people. Um, no, I mean, I, I was uh, the only thing I could say to people was that, you know, President Trump won't be president forever. And I think that dim-witted bigot or not, if he's impeached, Pence, as Corey says, will at least probably not be as as dangerously erratic and I, I think that is the big fear about Donald Trump, right, is is uh, in some ways on domestic policy in particular, Pence would be more dangerous from the perspective of those who disagree with his ideological positions because he would be probably more competent. He would be more capable of using the normal tools of politics to further his agenda. And if you don't like that agenda, that's bad. Trump has the, domestically speaking, the virtue of uh, making everybody so angry so often that even his friends are not terribly friendly to him and he can't he can't actually achieve much of what he wants to achieve but from a foreign policy perspective you know the 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 low probability high consequence danger of Donald Trump is that he you know listens to something on Fox or he's in a bad new, bad mood one day and he starts a war for no better reason than that i don't think that if Pence were president that we would be as worried about inadvertent or or bad mood based uh, global conflict and and that's not nothing right that's, that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's not, not nothing, nothing. Um, uh, although so, as, as Corey points out Pence is far more likely to launch the second children's crusade into the Middle East or something yeah. like that well you, yes it's it's a it's a small advantage well, th- it's Nick, a trade-off yeah no there's no question Nick as you um have been out there looking at this and talking to people, there seem to be sort of two emerging ways to deal with this moment in American foreign policy. Uh, there is the, or, or perhaps three, right? There is the approach of uh, potentates and autocrats around the world who flatter Trump, build a Trump hotel, roll out the red carpet, uh, play to his ego, use the moment to take advantage of his kind of lack of concern on things like human rights um, and uh, advance their own agendas, such as, for example, Erdogan's anti-press agenda in Turkey. 
Um, th- then there is, you know, there are a few enemies out there who are just sort of using Trump's buffoonishness uh, and uh, uh, inflammatory language to serve their own purposes, whether they're in North Korea or they're in Iran. Um, and then there's the Europeans who seem to be taking an approach of, uh, of many of them, let's just call him out. Let's go after him. It's better for our domestic politics. He's not going to be around forever. Let's not get too close to this guy. Um, let's talk tough. And, I, and I'm just wondering, you know, first of all, do you think that's right? And secondly, um, do you think the, how do you think the Europeans the approach to this is going to play out, um, you know, over the near to medium term? So David, I've been in Europe twice in the last, uh, five weeks. And um, I, I was I was struck to the degree um, by which the Europeans have lost a lot of faith and confidence in the American presidency. And I, I don't remember this happening in as big a way as it's happening now. I mean, they see even Germany. even during the Bush administration. Well, we had a I mean, obviously there was a huge division between the U.S., France, Germany and the European publics over the Iraq war. I was ambassador to NATO at the time in Brussels, and I remember hundreds of thousands of people protesting in every major city in Europe. So that was a huge divide. And we've talked about this. The European concern now is very different. It's not over one big issue. It's over whether the, or not the United States is invested in their future. Donald Trump has treated the European Union more as a strategic economic competitor than a political uh, ally. And he's certainly treated NATO with a huge degree, high degree of ambivalence, and he's not leading. And I think it's the fact that the U.S. is not leading, pitching in, as we said before, against the right-wing populace that has the Europeans worried. They see Russia and China taking advantage, Putin pressing on the borders of Moldova and Georgia and Ukraine. They see China pushing out in the South and East China Seas. They see this huge ambition of One Belt, One Road, almost a Eurasian policy by China to link Chinese influence in the East all the way over to the Port of Piraeus in Greece, to Bulgaria, and they don't see the United States responding strategically. So I think Macron and Merkel, the two most important leaders in Europe, um, you've seen them striking out independently. Macron critical of President Trump. Um, in the last three or four days. Merkel, now that the Social Democrats in Germany have agreed to form a, a grand coalition, I think she will seek to to make a um, an arrangement with Macron where they try to substitute for the absence of Donald, Donald Trump uh, in Europe for the first time. We won't have a major American powerful presence since 1945. I think the stakes are that high. I also think it's one of the greatest mistakes that the president has made in this first year. Madison Tillerson, frankly, get higher marks, especially Secretary Mattis from the Europeans, but there really is no substitute for that presidential leadership, and Donald Trump seems completely disinterested in Europe. Well, I know that you've got to go now and teach your class. Uh, I tell, do. Tell, tell, the, tell the nerds of Deep State Radio what your class is and why this is a particularly good moment for it. I think we may return to this issue perhaps with you in a few weeks. So. Well, I'm, I'm teaching a class with two other Harvard professors over at Harvard Law School, 100 students from the Business School, Law School, and Kennedy School. These are all graduate students. On what can we learn 
from the successful and unsuccessful big interstate negotiations of the last several decades. So we look at some positive examples of negotiation, how James A. Baker and George H.W. Bush and Helmut Kohl unified Germany at the end of the Cold War. That was a brilliant negotiation. Richard Holbrooke's ending of the Bosnian War at the Dayton Peace Talks. I was there um, as a State Department official when that happened. And then we look at the lack of success or failed diplomacy, the decision to go into Iraq in March 2003, the failure to intervene in Rwanda, and a million people died because of it in April 94, the failure to intervene in Darfur uh, a decade later. And so we look at this big question, when do we intervene, when do we not intervene? in someone else's civil war, I think it's one of the major questions that we've got to be answering uh, as we as we look to the future. Well, maybe we'll get you back, even, perhaps even with one of your colleagues, to talk about this at some point in the future. We'd be um, happy thank, to, Dave. Yeah, no, I think it'd be really interesting. Thank you very much, Nick. And we're going to just keep going here, so good luck with thank the you, class. Nick. Thank you, Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Rosa. Thank Corey. All right. Talk to you soon. So, Corey, you know, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, um, unless it's, you know, interesting. Since when? <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, but, 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 you know, Nick, Nick's point, Nick's very thoughtful guy, and Nick's obviously been in the middle of this. It, it sounds to me like he sees something materially different. He sees a move um, by leaders in Europe to say, no, we're going to have to step up and fill this void. Uh, and that, you know, in the past 70, 75 years, that really hasn't happened, um, even even with criticism of us, uh, us around an individual issue. At least that's his point. And I'm just wondering how you address that. I agree that uh, that it's a rarity for Europeans to step up and fill a void of provision of security and v- advancing our values. That to fill a void, the United States leaves. I am, however, less. Uh, optimistic than Nick that they are doing more than grandstanding at a moment in which we are failing. So if you look at that, if you look at polls of who people trust internationally, right? Everybody loves Germany and we want them to run the world. But in fact, that's not what Germany wants and that's not what Germany's doing. And so I, I think what the United States should be worried about is less Uh, that we are going to leave a void that our friends are going to fill and replace American leadership and perpetuate the values-based international order that, that was built after 1945 by us and others and that has served so well us and others, then that Europeans are going to make a lot of noise about America's failures do too little to step into the void and therefore delegitimize their own leadership while our actual adversaries like the Chinese and the Russians take advantage of a moment at which the United States, as Rosa said, isn't even pretending that we care about our values and Europeans are trumpeting their singular uh, beautiful, unique wonderfulness, but doing much too little to sustain the order. Okay, well, let me rephrase the question. Forget about Europe. Um, and nobody thinks that the Russians are going to sort of step up and 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 assume a role the U.S. played. But, Rosa, a lot of people think the Chinese are doing just that in a lot of places. Uh, and that whether, you know, the Europeans end up doing what Nick thinks they want to do or or they end up doing what Corey thinks they may end up doing, 
this is a period where you've got subtle and not so subtle moves by the PRC to fill a void. And, 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 and that's what seems to me to be the different thing here. You know, that, that the, you know, in, in the past it was, are, are you willing to criticize the U S yes. Are you willing to challenge them on specific issues? Yes. But was there ever a real discussion about whether there was a void, uh, whether, uh, an equal or a new system could emerge, uh, that might, constrain or supplant U.S. power. And, yeah. and, and China, China is a little bit more at the center of that, no? A little bit, but, but you know, China historically has not been particularly interested in being a global power. They've been largely inward looking. Uh, the rhetoric from China now is still, you know, it's, it's very ambivalent. And, and, you know, I'm not a China expert, but my sense from uh, talking to my friends who, who, who know more about China than I do is that there, there is a real internal debate within China about the degree to which that, you know, this is a simply an opportunity for China continue to advance its narrow economic agenda overseas. But China really does have no particular interest in becoming a global power in anything except a strictly economic sense is not, you know, is not interested in, in ch changing or challenging the political arrangements elsewhere, et cetera, versus the degree to which China is really beginning to think, huh, you know, why the heck not? You know, in, if the U.S. is retreating, we can not only advance our narrow economic agenda, but we potentially could become the next global political superpower as well as economic superpower and military superpower. Um, I, I don't know. It'd be really interesting to see. China obviously has enormous potential in a way that's just not true for Russia. You know, Russia is fundamentally weak. Uh, it's overly dependent on a small number of resources. Um, it's got a strong military, but does not most likely have the internal ability to sustain its strength in the, in the longer run. China clearly is the opposite. You know, if China decides that its ambition is, in fact, to replace the United States as global political superpower, I think there's a pretty good chance that it will be able to do that. Uh, at the moment, the question is whether they really want to and how do we respond? Do we just lie back and kind of go, all right, we give up, good night, we're having a nap now? Uh, uh, or do we get serious about, about responding? So we've got four or five minutes left here before we begin uh, to wrap up. Um, there's another dimension of this thing, which seems also a little bit different. Uh, as I travel around the world, and I've been in Asia, Latin America, Africa, Europe, over the course of the past few months, uh, people express all the concerns that everybody here has expressed. Um, but there's also this kind of strange undercurrent of people actually laughing at the U.S., of thinking Trump is ridiculous. Oh, he is ridiculous. Yeah, no, he is. And and this is the thing, you know, Corey, when you're over there in the UK and, you know, you you have a couple of pints, uh, people tend to do that, or bitters or something, whatever they have in the UK. <laughs> they have pints uh, of bitter. Pints of bitter, yeah, one of, one of those kind of things. Um, yeah. Warm beer. I mean, it, it, are you getting this, dude, that there is this kind of thing where not only, you know, are people concerned about foreign affairs and stuff like that, but that they're really laughing. They think this is kind of funny, that this is a kind of a dark comedy unfolding in the U.S. I think that's right. 
Um, I know that's right. Everybody is laughing. And I think it's fundamentally healthy for two reasons. First, because the United States has, you know, since the end of the Cold War, very often been just gaggingly hubristic, right? Like, we're the greatest military, we're the greatest empire since Rome, we're the greatest military in the history of the world. The American exceptionalism conversation is like, people aren't that interested. And nobody but us talks about themselves that way. Maybe occasionally the French talk about themselves that way. But look at what the reaction is to the French when they talk about themselves that way and write that large for how people react to us. And the second thing is, I, I'm sure I've said before on Deep State Radio that I once heard an interview with Mel Brooks when the producers, uh, his, his terrific play was under production. And, and he was asked whether it wasn't offensive to Holocaust survivors that he ridiculed Hitler with, you know, the song Springtime for Hitler and all that. And Mel Brooks gave what I thought was a really powerful answer, which is when you can mock something, it takes it down to the dimensions that can be countered. It makes people less fearful. It's emboldening of their activism. And I actually think that's quite appropriate and called for in this moment. So, so I think it's great people are laughing at us because, first of all, we take ourselves too seriously. Um, and second of all, it's rude to talk about yourself as a great power. Where do you come down on... on, I say, on you're welcome, on, on, world, that we've given you this moment of comic relief. <laughs> no problem. You're welcome. <laughs> exactly. I kind of like Corey's term of gaggingly hubristic. Um, <laughs> uh, but but the gag's on us, obviously. And I mean, I, I don't I'm not really very familiar with the Turkish sense of humor, but you were just coming back from there. <laughs> was 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 there a lot of, you know, uh, sort of behind uh, oh, you know, sort Turks of under the breath really laugh. A hilarious people uh the the turks i wouldn't say the turks are as into slapstick as uh as as, as cory and i are <laughs> the turks didn't seem to think we were terribly funny <laughs> they just thought we were a bunch of big jerks <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's uh, I mean, that's, that's... you know uh if syria is on your border and you've got three million syrian refugees and you're dealing with the kurdish issue and you're right next door and to they, Iran. And things things don't look as humorous. The U.S. unilaterally announces a border force of those right, groups. Right, things don't look quite as humorous to them as they as they look from afar. Yeah, did they, by the way, mention to you that they were going to go in and attack America's, um, you know, direct ally in the Kurds? They and, were and clear, well, they were pretty clear about that. I mean, they 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 were very clear that they are absolutely appalled and boggled and offended and hurt and, you know, by the fact that the U.S. is arming uh, the Kurds in Syria, that they view, they, 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 I think, you know, correctly in this particular case, uh, uh, despite all of the, the, you know, to to an American, there's lots that is sympathetic about the Kurds, um, including the Kurdish nationalist movement in Turkey, even though the methods have been terrorism and the U.S. considers the PKK inside Turkey to be a terrorist organization, uh, you know, that from the perspective of the U.S., we think about the Kurds in Iraq, we think about the Kurds in Syria, we say, but gee, they're the only people who are ever nice to us. And not only that, we screwed them over multiple times uh, in the last few decades, and don't we owe them something, um, which is not wrong. 
Um, but on the other hand, from the Turks' perspective, we just armed a bunch of people who essentially said to us, hey, you, you do know, right, that we're going to be using these weapons inside Turkey. Uh, and we kind of said, oh, please don't tell us that. We don't want to hear about it. And from the Turks' perspective, you cannot, you, you, you just cannot say, Turkey, we're your ally, you're our NATO ally, and then go and arm people who are going to use those weapons inside of Turkey, often to kill civilians and to attack government installations. Uh, so they are, they are baffled to their piss. And they're not wrong about those. And they're not wrong. No, well, let me, you know, this, let's give the last word here to Corey, who entered a, a moment late. Uh, please explain to me the, cur the serious situation. Um, this is not <laughs> funny. Um, but, you know, I mean, the problem with Obama clearly was he was very diffident about Syria. He didn't take action. He didn't he didn't do what we could have done early. Um, uh, and uh, it was partially because he didn't know whose side we were really on. Um, and and of course, it's complicated there. Trump has taken the opposite point of view, it seems to me, um, which is we're for and against everyone. You know, we're, we like the Russians and they're pretty good, but along the uh, Merv, the middle Euphrates River Valley, you know, we're, we're on the verge of actually getting into conflict with them. We're for the Kurds. They help us, but we're not going to actually stop the Turks from going after them. We, we don't like the Turks and we do like the Turks. Uh, we're against Assad, but on the other hand, you know, we're going to do what we can uh, to, you know, give the Russians as much leeway as possible. And they're for Assad. We're for Bibi. We're we're against Iran, but some of the things we're doing end up being against Israeli interests and for Iranian interests. And so it's like he's doubling down on confusion, where Obama was doubling down on inaction. And it it seems to me more likely to get us into trouble. But maybe you have a different view. So David, I think you have just given a magnificent summary of American policy towards Syria. Uh, with all its inherent contradictions and difficulties. Um, it's an incredibly complicated policy because it's a pretty complicated landscape politically that we are trying to navigate, right? There aren't easy, good answers. If there ever were, that time has long passed. Um, second thing about it is that the Trump administration more generally in Middle East policy, I thought I understood, right, that it was doubling down on what we call traditional allies and what we mean is Israel and the Gulf states. Um, but President Trump in his erratic behavior enthusiastically egged the Saudis and UAE on to fracture Gulf cooperation. So, so it's messy. I think the secretaries of state and defense are trying very hard to get a consistent policy in place and to hold that fixed over time. And the entropy that that the president of the United States keeps injecting into this, either because he doesn't know what he's doing. Parenthetically, how funny was the picture of President Trump doing his job after the shutdown where he had no papers on his desk. He was just holding a phone up to his ear. And parentheses. And no, he, was, he, was, he was also wearing a dopey hat. Don't, don't, but, don't, but don't forget, he was wearing a Make America Great Again hat in the not-so-attractive white Excellent. color with red letters. Um, well, Excellent you know, point. So one last, one last thing about Syria policy, though, which is that um, 
I was at Tillerson's speech at Stanford last week, and I found so much to applaud in his approach to it. But it seemed only distantly connected to what our actual policy is and almost unconnected to the resources this administration is willing to put to the problem. So, you know, it's a great strategy, but it requires nation building, open-ended military commitments, um, and all sorts of other things the president of the United States opposes. Well, that's a, a, a good place to end because I think on the next episode of Deep State Radio, we're going to have a discussion about our strategies because for the first time in 10 years, we both have a national security strategy from the NSC uh, and a, a national defense strategy from the Department of Defense. Um, and there seems to be a bit of dueling strategies going on here. Uh, and the potential for a fairly substantial sea change in how the U.S. views the world. So we're going to discuss that uh, on the next episode. I do want to offer a little bit of an optimistic footnote here, picking up on sort of Corey's uh, tiara of optimism-tinged view of the world. But yesterday, I, <laughs> here at Sundance, got to sit in on um, a conversation with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and... Uh, I have to say, and this happens to me fairly regularly uh, when you go to the Supreme Court or you talk to Supreme Court justices, but it happens especially around people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There was a sense in that room of huge, deep support for some parts of the U.S. government, for some people, for their leadership, for the causes that they've championed their whole life, of, of parts of the system actually working. And of course, you know, given, you know, R Ruth Bader Ginsburg was making some statements about her own health and, you know, that she's 84 and she feels great and everybody cheered and she's hired, uh, uh, you know, uh, clerks through 2020, you know, sending the message she's not going anywhere and everybody cheered. But I have to say, listening, everybody in that room, including myself, would have given her any body organ she needed to stay alive um, uh, and, stay, <laughs> and st stay on that court. Uh, but it was really it was really inspiring. And so even when some parts of the government are dysfunctional, and, and sometimes it seems like almost all of it, there are some pockets of hope and, and we can cling to that. Anyway, sorry to sorry to sort of borrow the tiara of optimism there for a second. I was Corey. just gonna say, can I have my tiara back, please? Yes. No, no, you you need to pack that. Um, uh, yes, definitely. Uh, thank you very much, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you to Nick, who's off teaching his class. Thank you to all of you deep state nerds out there. And uh, we'll see Yay you again Yay for deep soon. state nerds! Yay for them, yeah. And we'll see you sometime soon uh, on the next episode of uh, Deep State Radio. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.